The Giyar Yothan had first been found in a wild state amidst the Cyclopean ruins of the deserted Red Litten world of Yoth, which lay below the Blue Litten world of Kunyan. That part of them was human seemed quite clear, but men of science could never decide whether they were actually the descendants of the bygone entities who had lived and reigned in the strange ruins. The chief ground for such a supposition was the well-known fact that the vanished inhabitants of Yoth had been quadrupedal. This much was known from the very few manuscripts and carvings found in the vaults of Zin beneath the largest ruined city of Yoth. Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, and I'm your host, Frank. This is another one of my first look episodes, and... I'm sorry, listener, I'm by myself this week. I had plans for someone to join me. Plans have fallen through. That person is going to be amazing down the line when we can organise it. But alas, it's just me. So what I'm going to try and do is keep things light, keep things moving, but also I think keep things, you know, at least spot on with, with card analysis. I want it to be at least a little bit considered what I'm trying to say about cards, but We all know how this works. I've not seen the cards before. I have a pile of them right in front of me. And we're looking at the player cards from the depths of Yoth. Normally I like to start with a bit of a prediction about what to expect for cards. And I tried to run the numbers to work out how many cards we'd expect. But to be honest with you, I think all bets are off at the moment. The way that the Forgotten Age has played out in terms of how many cards we get in a pack and what the kind of release pattern looks like. Uh, internally rather than kind of externally in terms of dates. Yeah, the situation there is just, it's all over the place. I think intentionally to to make the job of commentators like myself a little bit more tricky. So I'm not going to make any predictions about what we'll see. I think I only know three of the cards and I just saw one spoiled today and I managed to look away before I saw anything about the card. So I'm in quite a good place in that regard. But yeah, no predictions. We're just going to dive in. One other thing before I go any further. I've actually set myself a little challenge for this episode as well, but I'm not going to tell you what that challenge is, and I'll let you know if I manage it at the end of the episode. Okay, without further ado, let's look at the player cards of the fifth Mythos pack in the Forgotten Age cycle, The Depths of Yoth. The first card is Handcuffs. Okay, Guardian, two-cost asset, agility icon, it's item and police-traded. I think police badge is police-traded as well. It's quite a rare trait. Action, if handcuffs is not attached to an enemy, evade. Use only on a humanoid enemy. This evasion attempt uses combat instead of agility. If you succeed, attach handcuffs to the just-evaded enemy. If the attached enemy is non-elite, it cannot ready and Doom cannot be placed on it. No slots, and it's a Magali Villeneuve illustration. She's a well-regarded illustrator. Wow, this is fascinating. This is actually one of those quite knotty cards, I think. It's a way of evading for Guardian. It's targeted at specific enemies, though, humanoid enemies. And remember that things like ghouls are humanoids. Humanoid is not purely humans. It's also creatures of a humanoidal aspect or monsters, rather. So you could be a monster and a humanoid, depending on your shape. I guess you need some limbs. You need to be a bit human-like to be humanoid. 
amazing that you can use combat instead of agility. Because when I first, <laughs> on that first sentence, I thought, uh-oh, guardians are not well known for their agility and their evasion. Maybe skids, I guess, a sort of guardian off-class. Anyway, you evade, and essentially you've spent an action and two resources ahead of the evasion to get handcuffs into play, and this then attaches to the enemy, and they cannot ready if they're non-elite, and doom cannot be placed on them. The doom cannot be placed on the enemy is a bit of a hint for me. That, to me, says, look at cultists, look at those enemies that gain doom. So I'm going straight to Wizard of the Order, who's a two evade, and if you could evade Wizard of the Order with this, Wizard of the Order's gain a doom at the end of every mythos phase ability is completely blanked, and you can just move on with your life. It's less useful for things like Acolytes, because they already have a Doom when they come into play, and the way to clear that Doom is to kill them normally. So I, I can't see it having a use there as much. And I realise, actually, in mentioning Skids, that, of course, this uses combat instead of agility, so, you know, for him it's less of a good bargain. Like, maybe this is a sort of a Zoe or a Mark card, or even a Leo card, to get it down there. What happens to the card once it's attached? It just sits there, I suppose. So you, you've spent an action early on to play it. Maybe you've played Ever Vigilant to get this down, and then you pick your appropriate target to handcuff. I imagine there would be lots of different humanoid targets that this could be useful on. Ooh, like the Seekers of Carcosa, potentially. Pop this on them, and then they're just not a problem anymore. But it does take quite a lot of setup. So you'd, this would be a card, I think, that would fall into one of those brackets of I'd need to run it in a deck, see how it fits in, and see how often actually I wished I had this ability. Yeah. I guess Yorick could replay it as well. He could discard it for the agility icon and then get it back without actions. Good first card. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> the art on the next card is uh, ludicrous. And, oh my, it's a spell. A guardian spell. Oh my word. Okay, the second card is Blood Eclipse, which is spell and spirit traded. Calvin's ears perk up. It's a one-cost event for three XP. It has willpower and combat icons, so quite offensive card. As an additional cost to play Blood Eclipse, take up to three damage. Fight. This attack uses willpower instead of combat. You get plus one willpower and deal plus one damage for this attack for each damage taken as part of this card's cost. Huh. Let's work through that again. So I pay one, I get to fight, I take three damage, up to three damage. Let's say I go for the whole three. If I mark, that draws me a card, which is okay. If I'm pretty much any guardian apart from Carolyn, I don't really mind taking that damage. Well, Carolyn could also heal it, maybe. If you're Calvin, you like pump up your physical stats as well. And I then fight with willpower. That's where it gets weird for Guardians. We've seen an evade card that uses combat, and now we're seeing a fight card that uses willpower, because it's a spell. Zoe or Leo both have willpower four. They like this. And if I've taken three damage, I'm getting plus three willpower and dealing four damage, which makes this a sort of I've had worse, but where I can control the damage. I like it for that, for being able to target, right, this is a three health enemy. It's blocking up me using my machete. I'm going to pay one and wipe this guy out and then I'll chop up all the little ones. That seems nice. I like it as well if you've built a rounded deck and you're running out of combat boosts and you want to boost something else. Because let's be realistic here, in, in multiplayer you might have only put combat icons in your deck. But if you're playing one or two player, you might have put a guts in and things like that. And having this available as a way of sort of quickly transitioning is quite cool. 
Is there anyone who can take Arcane Initiate and hunt for the spell? I don't think anyone who could take this could also do that. Oh, Akachi, right? No, she can't take... It's Marie who can take spells up to level 5. So Marie could take this. And she probably does like to fight with willpower instead of combat. Because she's got a combat of 1. Okay, I'm sort of intrigued. I like the idea of having this in Calvin as well as a way of doing damage if you've been taking horror. You could pump up your physical stats by taking the damage and you could do the boost. Yeah, that's sort of where I'm seeing it fit. And I could, I'm could i intrigued to see how it fits in probably Zeri or Leo. What a wicked card. It's our first spell in Guardian as well. Can't complain about that. The next card is a Seeker Asset. It's two cost and three XP. It has a single intellect icon. It takes up the arcane slot and that's because it's a spell called Feed the mind uses three secrets action exhaust feed the mind and spend one secret test intellect zero for each point you succeed by draw one card then take one horror for each card in your hand in excess of your maximum hand size holy moly right i'm daisy so i have an intellect of five i put this down i exhaust it spend a secret I draw a minus two because I'm playing on standard, and that's the average difficulty, so I pass by three and I draw three cards. If I was taking this with five cards in hand, then I'd be fine, but any more than that and I'd kind of roll out. This is quite a long-winded way to get card draw, but, you know, particularly in Seeker, where Seeker have so many other ways of drawing cards, but it is card draw that Akachi could take because it has... No, it doesn't have charges. It has secrets. Again, it's only Marie. It's not a catchy. So that's kind of interesting. I guess I could add more secrets to this from Truth From Fiction. I'm not sure I'd want to do that. It's it's basically a really weird spell, isn't it? The horror I'm not too worried about for Seekers, purely because they normally have more sanity than they have damage soak. The thing I'm wondering about is I've paid two resources and a, an action to play it, and then I'm spending another action to draw. So really I want to get at least probably three cards out of that draw. Which means I want to be passing by a decent amount. I wonder if... I mean, it's a good double or nothing target, isn't it? If we ever saw a Seeker Rogue, you could be having a lot of fun with that. Double the difficulty to zero and draw two cards per success. But then you'd be taking more horror, I suppose, if you draw over. What, what a fascinating card. What a strange way of doing card draw. I wonder if this is for us, uh, an investigator we've not yet seen. It seems so strange. I sort of can't think of a, a good fit for it. But maybe I'm just tired and not thinking straight. Wow, but that's it for Seekers. They just have this banana spell. Okay, cool. <laughs> On we go. Hey, that's a thought. Daisy can take this. And she can also take Arcane Initiate. So she can use Arcane Initiate to find this. It's not too expensive to play. And then maybe it just sits there waiting for that time where she wants to draw three or four cards. Two or three cards? Three, three or four, two or three. Something like that. You don't really want to be committing cards to boost yourself to draw more cards. But maybe as Daisy, if you've got higher red down and you've got five cards in hand, you spend a resource, boost yourself to seven intellect, and you almost certainly draw two or three cards. I, I mean, taking tests to draw cards, it's a little bit like, what was it called... Uh, alchemical transmutation, where taking a test to get resources, you can't rely on it to get you the amount you want. And that's always going to mean that people consider this card less powerful. So 
yeah, I would really like to see where this fits in or a way that you could maybe abuse this ability to massively overdraw. That could be cool. And then take a bundle of horror. Maybe eliminate yourself. That would be fun. You've overfed your mind. Okay, that's it for Seekers. They're done. We're up to Rogues. Hoo hoo hoo. This little pop pop. This is the Cult Vest Pocket. It's a two-cost asset with an agility icon, zero XP, item, weapon, firearm, illicit, that good rogue weapons string of traits, uses five ammo. Action, spend one ammo, fight. You get plus one combat for this attack. This attack deals plus one damage, takes up a hand slot. Immediately I'm thinking, this looks amazing, five ammo for two cost. And then it says forced at the end of the round, discard cult vest pocket. I mean... Sleight of hand, straight away, (laughs) and ace in the hole, and anything else that gives you actions. You pop this guy down, you try and get shots off. Even if you pop it down and get four bullets, paying two for a forty-five automatic and taking four shots is much better than paying four for a forty-five automatic. It's such a shame it's not fast. But with fence, you make it fast. Yes. Okay, it's, it's starting to come together here. You've got Leo. I guess the perfect home is skids, right? You pay two for an extra action. You've got Leo, you've got Fence. You play this for uh, no action but two resources, and then you've got five actions left. Your three normal ones, your Leo, the Luca one, and your skids action. And you go bam, 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 do 10 damage, and then this is gone. And you could already add more value to that if you sleight of handed it a couple of times before then and done more shots. Because sleight of hand is at the end of your turn, it comes back to your hand. So you'd avoid the forced effect with this. Lovely, really cute little weapon, really nice sort of rival to the Derringer, I'd say. You maybe like the combat boost with the Derringer, but you don't like the drawback of not the guaranteed damage. And if we ever see that high combat rogue who loves illicit weapons, this is a good fit as well. Maybe Leo likes this, Leo Anderson. He doesn't get as many actions though, so it's maybe less valuable in that regard. But if you're running like a slightning gun Leo and you want other targets to slight, this is this is okay. Although if you're playing sleight of hand, the cost of the weapon doesn't matter in a way. In a way, you want to sleight of hand in a Chicago typewriter or a lightning gun, depending on who you're playing. So this is a less good target in that regard. I wonder if we ever got something that actively allows you to blank the text of an asset that you have. You could turn off something like the forced effect for a turn, keep it around for an extra turn. It's a little bit like the way that because Leo Anderson can play Treasure Hunter or Hired Muscle without spending the action, he gets more value and he gets a discount, right? So he gets them in essentially for free, they just appear in play, which means then the drawback of paying to keep them in play is less severe because you've sort of not committed anything. Anyway, that's a tangent. Sweet little weapon. I'd love to also slot this maybe into a Finn illicit deck because obviously Finn can find it with smuggled goods. It's nice. Whoa. The next card is almost, it looked more like a Luger than uh, Colt Vest Pocket, but it's Coup de Grasse, uh, which is a two cost event with a double combat icon. Pretty sure the typewriter is double combat. But other than that, I don't think we've ever seen a rogue event or a rogue card with two combat icons. This is tactic. Okay, Mark, Harrigan, see, I'm still on the ball a little bit, and fated traded. And as you'll probably remember from our last first look, there are only two fated cards. I believe Peter tried to steal my thunder when I told him that there were only two. Uh, Flavor, two bullets cracked open the creature's skull. Then another, then another, then another. Maybe this is the cult vest pocket. That's five damage. Wow. Deal one damage to an enemy at your location. 
If this effect defeats that enemy, draw one card. If it is your turn, end your turn, that's the fated clause, this action does not provoke attacks of opportunity. Hmm. What a fascinating card. There's actually, like, a whole load to unpack here. Paying two for two damage, testlessly, would be sneak attack. And this is paying two for one damage. But, unlike sneak attack, the enemy doesn't need to be evaded, or not engaged with you, or engaged with you, like mano a mano. It just needs to be there with you. You just have to be there. But it's a single point of damage. So paying two for one damage... Paying two to kill a rat is kind of crummy-ish, but you're not losing the card or you're gaining another card off the back of that. And then all of the challenges that come with bold and fated kick in. Can you make sure that you time this at the end of your turn so that you don't lose any actions for it? I can see in a brawler, you've maybe taken a couple of stabs with your switchblade level two or a couple of shots with your derringer and not quite done enough damage. And if you've got the resources to sort of finish off the enemy, this is quite nice. If you've realised that you are probably not going to do the amount of hits you need, you could be committing this for double combat to try and just make the hit. And I think in difficulties higher than standard, where getting that last point of damage can be absolutely vital, this could be really useful. I like the thought of a rogue who does testless damage and runs around not really fighting, so maybe a sort of Seth character, but like turning up in a location, sneak attacking something and running off, turning up in another location and dealing a damage to an enemy that's the final point on a five health enemy, something like that. Your guardian's done most of the work, but your rogue is the one just polishing off enemies and things like that. that that's decent to me. I like that it doesn't provoke attacks of opportunity as well. So in a pinch, you end up in a location with a rats or an acolyte and you just pay two and they're gone. That's That's okay. That's good. Yeah, nice. I mean, the challenge is deck slots, right? Where do you find the prime place to fit this in? Does Mark like this, by the way, as a final thing? Mark Harrigan maybe likes it? I mean, I like putting things in Mark that give him more damage output, but it's always hard to argue against the tried and tested 45 or Machete or, you know, Guardian have a lot of damage output without going out of the faction. It's a cool card. And now we are at the first card I actually know about, which is the Skeleton Key. And in looking at it, I realise I can't remember the ruling on this card. I wonder if this has been... I don't think it is in the FAQ. So this is a three-cost asset. It's two XP, but hold your horses, it's exceptional. So that means it's four XP. It has a double intellect icon. So it's probably something to do with clues. Maybe it's a bit like Lola Santiago. It's item, relic, and cursed. Relic meaning that Ursula can take it, and it's fast as well as exceptional, so pay three and it's in play. It reads, action, attach the skeleton key to your location. If it is already attached to your location, detach it and return it to your play area instead. Set the attached location shroud value to one. I just mentioned Lola Santiago. She works very well with the skeleton key because you can exhaust Lola as a free trigger Pay X where X is the shroud of your location to buy a clue once a turn. So if you can turn a five shroud location into a one shroud location, you're saving yourself four resources if you think you're going to buy those clues rather than investigate to get those clues. That in itself is an amazing combination and it's going to cost you 10 XP to get a skeleton key and two Lola Santiago's in your deck. So pretty big investment. 
but potentially buy clues for days. This is also just lovely because rogues generally, and I think it's only rogues, Ursula and Lola who can take this. Oh, and Wendy can take this. Everyone I've just mentioned apart from Seth has intellect three or higher. So if you can set the shroud to one, you're already two up investigating. Many of those people I've named, all of them can all take lockpicks. So in combination with the skeleton key, you can probably be investigating at six plus against the shroud of one. Incredible. So I've noticed playing Finn as well, that the way that rogues seem to be getting clues, I really like how this has evolved. Their approach is somewhat different to seekers. So picture, if you will, a graph, and you've got the shroud value of locations fluctuating along at normally between one and five, sort of up and down across the course of a scenario. That So your, your is it y-axis that goes up is shroud value, and your x-axis is sort of locations that you visit over the course of a scenario. So you've got a one, a two, then you're into a four, then you're down to a three, whatever. Seeker's intellect often is considerably higher than that shroud value and then floats along at probably two or three above each shroud value more or less for the whole game with maybe a couple of spikes rogues on the other hand aren't getting as many clues but their their path on that graph is much more spiky because you'll do an investigate with lockpicks and maybe with lola giving you a boost and you'll be a really big thing and then maybe you'll buy a clue so you're essentially investigating at zero with Lola and it's nothing or maybe you'll do an eavesdrop or you'll you'll be doing other things you might have a flashlight in there so the shroud is dipping lower in the way that a seeker probably wouldn't have a flashlight things like that sort of go on it's it's a different shape to map it it's a different graph pattern graph line my mathematical terminology is failing me here anyway the skeleton key kind of skews that because it pulls down that first line on the graph to a flat lined, and the, the rogues are still bouncing up and down like a crazy thing. A yo-yo, they bounce up and down. So yeah, so it's sort of a strange how that maybe fits in, but maybe you don't go for those big burnout plays of a double or nothing difficulty and use your lockpicks for plus three or four, and streetwise again is another big boost, because you don't need to with this. The rules question, I'd be remiss not to mention it. As worded at the moment... The key gets attached to your location, but if it's already attached to your location, detach it. And if you're at another location, can you trigger this ability to just pull the key straight over from location A to your location, location B? I think the FAQ recently does actually have something about control of attachments and what happens if you attach a player card to an encounter card and things like that. But I haven't looked at it thoroughly enough. So yeah, I can't answer it. Common sense tells me that the way this should work is to attach it to a new location, you have to have first detached it. And obviously that means there is a significant action cost baked into this card. That yes, it's great to bake the shroud of a location one, but in solo, if you're spending two actions, one to attach it, and then another to detach it to take it to the next location, that's substantial. In the same amount of time, you could have just committed the card for its plus two and hoped to pass the test. So this also then, strangely for rogues, stands out as a quite multiplayer-friendly card, a little bit like the Pocket Watch, where if you can set a location to one and all of the rest of your party can be getting clues, because everyone can pass an intellect one test, hopefully, then you're laughing. Another thing about that setting the shroud value to one, I'm pretty sure it was ruled that that means irrespective of what you then do to the shroud value it's still one so if you set a shroud five to shroud one and then you try and investigate with flashlight 
you drop the shroud to zero and then skeleton key just kicks in again. It's a constant ability. The shroud is one. And similarly, if you drew Ooze and Filth, the Carcosa encounter card that adds plus one shroud, or uh, an Obscuring Fog that adds plus two shroud, all of those things, they just don't count. The final number is one. So it's worth bearing that in mind that you can't kind of cheese it and run around with a lantern and set things at one and then lower them to zero. It's one. There's always going to be that chance of failure, you know, a, a challenge to handle. Okay, that's Rogues done. A lovely trio of Rogue cards. I'm a fan of Rogues. Ah, oh, and it's another card we know. It's Mists of Rulier, level four. This is a two-cost asset for Mystics with willpower and agility icons. So it's gained a willpower icon. It uses five charges. It's gained a charge. It's a spell. It takes the arcane slot. And it says spend a charge, evade. This evasion attempt uses willpower instead of agility. You get plus three willpower for this evasion attempt. Very generous boost. If you succeed after evading the chosen enemy, you may move to a connecting location. If any of the special tokens are revealed during this evasion attempt, choose and discard a card from your hand. I like this a lot. I like Mists of Relier level zero. I think gaining an icon and gaining a plus three boost and a charge without gaining any further drawback is really quite nice. You know, compare it to shriveling where the higher level shriveling, shriveling five, you're taking two horror at a at a pop, which is pretty nasty. This this seems reasonable. It's more in line with Rite of Seeking level four, where you're getting a nice boost and more clues with the same drawback. Yeah. It's strong. We thought Forgotten Age would be the agility cycle, but it's not really the agility cycle as much as the cycle where how you deal with enemies is a more tricky proposition than simply kill them all. And having more ways within different factions to to play with that is a good thing. I like this for any willpower four mystics. So that's Norman, Jim, Mateo, because they would prefer a bigger boost to their willpower and maybe are running a couple more things that boost their willpower. And it would be remiss of me not to mention Arcane Research, which of course means you can get this for three or even for two cost if you're running two because you're a maniac. Okay, wow, Mystics only get one. Thank goodness I didn't make a prediction, eh? The next card is a description of me doing first looks. It's winging it. It's a one cost event for survivors with no icons. It's tactic, hello Mark. And it's also improvised, which I think is our second improvised card. You may play winging it from your discard pile. If you do, shuffle it into your deck after resolving its effects. So that is the same as improvised weapon. Then it says, investigate. Your location gets minus one shroud for this investigation. If you played winging it from your discard pile, discover one additional clue if you succeed. Ah, that is lovely. Okay, really, really tasty actually. It has, like, you know, rewind to back when Forgotten Age came out. And we were not quite sure how to judge Improvised Weapon. Because do you really want to pay one to fight to do one damage just for a minus one fight difficulty? Like, it was all right. And then you, that, you have to do that before it's in your discard pile or you have to overdraw. Or then Cornered came out and you chuck it away for plus two icons and then it sits in your discard pile ready to be played onto the back into your deck. And I played Improvised Weapon a fair amount in Silas and a little bit in Calvin and I really liked having ways of doing damage that weren't reliant on finding weapons. And sometimes I really liked playing Improvised Weapon first from my hand and then from my discard pile to kill a three damage enemy. So it did have its uses as a way of making tests easier and killing off enemies. This Lowering Shroud we know is good, apart from its Skeleton Key, so that's nice. 
I'm not sure I'd pay one just to lower Shroud once. Maybe I would, depending on who was running it. Maybe if I was Calvin and I was really desperate to try and get a clue. But then using it again from your discard pile to get a double clue is really nice. I have noticed playing solo that there are very few locations with double clues the further into the game we've got. There's a lot in Dunwich and then it's sort of settled down a fair amount. But sometimes the double clue locations are also the victory point locations. Oh, no, that's... I'm talking about my ass. Like, sometimes they just got high shroud. So, anyway, there are times when you just want to scoop two clues. And if you're playing solo, you're probably not built to scoop two clues in one because most locations have one clue. So having a way of either playing look what I found and grabbing two for failing or having this sitting in your discard pile and you can drop the shroud and get the clues is nice. If you've got a static boost from newspaper for your intellect as well, that's really nice because you can't combine this investigate with flashlight. So you need some other way of boosting your intellect. I mean, maybe Finn likes this as a one-off, as a way of getting clues. But, I mean, he could also take a deduction or something like that. So he's not he's not as bothered. But yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, I like it. It's cool. I'd love to see a Mark deck with this and uh, Coup de Grasse in it, just, just for the fun. Mark grows with every tactic card. The next card is Old Hunting Rifle. Please see Visions of Future Past episode 4 when we announce this card to the community. I still love this card. It's nice to see it in the flesh, actually. I was talking with a couple of people about, do you take Fire Axe, Baseball Bat, Old Hunting Rifle? What do you take in Survivor to fight? And one of the conclusions I was coming to, which I don't think I was pushing this too much on them, but it was sort of like, as long as you know what the drawbacks of each of those cards are, you're kind of fine. So as long as you take the shot with this gun, knowing that there's four or three autofails in the bag rather than one, that's okay. As long as your mystic has counterspell ready or time warp and is ready to protect you and you have live and learn and you know generally you're prepared to mitigate failure, then, then that's fine. That's good. But I won't say much more about this. Uh, I should probably read it out. Three cost asset, three XP, combat and agility icons, icon, weapon, firearm, uses three ammo, action, spend an ammo to fight, you get plus three combat and deal plus two damage for this attack. If a skull or an autofill symbol is revealed during this attack, the rifle jams! They could have put an exclamation mark, it would have been so good. This attack automatically fails. Before you can activate this ability again, you must perform the following ability, action, you clear the jam, two hand slots. Yeah, I think it's, what I just love about it is it's just thrown this new option for survivors to think about. Normally they're XP rich if they're in a larger group because they haven't had as many big bomb cards to buy. And this sort of says, right, do I want this as a damage card? Maybe I'm not using my hands for much else anyway. And it, yeah, it it puts the, the cat among the survivor weapon pigeons as it were. Wow, and now we have not one, not two, but three neutral cards. Just checking that none of these have a scenario icon on them. They don't. The first card is Thermos. This is a four-cost asset with a willpower icon. The Thermos is beautiful. It's by Robert Lasky, and it looks like they're having sort of minestrone in their Thermos rather than coffee or tea, which is quite sweet. It's an item, so you can backpack it. It uses three supplies, and it has two actions. Spend a supply, exhaust Thermos, heal one damage from an investigator at your location, two damage instead if he or she has two or more physical trauma, and action, spend one supply, exhaust Thermos, heal one horror from an investigator at your location, two horror instead if he or she has two or more mental trauma. 
Ah, the Forgotten Age trauma coming good at last. Well, this is a lovely support card, I think. Ventura can top this up. Caroline, Caroline, Caroline maybe likes it because she tops it up. It's incredibly flexible. It's like a first aid, spend an action and a supply for healer damage or a horror. But it has this nice, if you've got some trauma, it'll heal more for you, which is cool. If you don't like first aid, which is a two cost asset, you're probably not going to like the four cost thermos though, are you? So any way that you can mitigate the cost of this, either by being Carolyn and making big money, or perhaps by playing it cheaply with Ever Vigilant, or maybe without spending an action as Yorick, is good. It's lovely to be able to heal two damage if they have two physical trauma, but you're also then investing actions to find this to do that healing. We've talked about it before. Is healing any good? Is it just prolonging the inevitable? I don't yet have an answer. I'd love to see a really supportive healing deck that maybe is chucking Thermos around to keep people topped up. But obviously this grows in strength later in a campaign when the trauma has started to accumulate. I wonder if Calvin likes it. Is it Calvin's Thermos? Just because you could easily be going into a scenario with three trauma of each and you might be at a point where an unlucky pull puts you up to five horror or damage and actually going back down is much safer. But again, big investment, four resources is not cheap, and then multiple actions to to spend it. Tricky. The next card is a Peter favourite, because it's a map, it's hemispheric map, a two-cost asset, three XP, with willpower and intellect icons, so it's an intellect thing. Dimitri Bilak's art is stunning, really nice. I'm just studying this to see, that's Europe, Asia, India, I wonder where it's pointing, heart of Africa. Okay, anyway, it's item and relic traded. It takes up the accessory slot, so Ellie can find this. While your current location is connected to at least two other locations, ooh, I'm thinking of the compass, you get plus one willpower and plus one intellect. While your current location is connected to at least four other locations, you get an additional plus one intellect and plus one willpower. I've read those two backwards. Huh, okay. Now this, whereas Thermos is very action intensive, this, you put it down, and as long as you are standing in the middle of the map and not playing, well, Essex is actually fine, it's connected to two other locations, almost all the way through, as long as you're not at the start or the end of the train. But yeah, for a lot of other scenarios, probably two connections is where you're at, and one connection locations are pretty rare. I wonder if Depths of Yoth is all single connections, we'll have to see. That's pretty strong. So the question then is who wants plus one willpower and plus one intellect? And I, my head goes to Norman. Those are his stats. Daisy, they're hers as well. Maybe Marie likes it. And to be honest with you, Ursula might like this as well, just from the fact that she can find it so quickly. And if Ellie's holding it for her, it's not even taking up a slot. Those would be my top hits. Maybe Leo, although less sure about Leo, Maybe maybe Calvin, maybe someone who just needs a bit of topping up about things. I can't see... Oh, maybe maybe Silas, actually, weirdly. I was going to say I can't see it being in Silas, but and actually, sort of, it could be Silas because you just shore up his weaker statistics and you have it sitting there as a static boost without too many considerations. So, yeah, cool, I like it. But, I mean, deck slots, right? Just making sure that there's space in your deck to invest 6 XP for the map... To have nice static boosts. That's tough. It's almost a St. Hubert's key upgrade, isn't it? Final thought for you. 
Okay, and we're on to the last card. Now this, I saw the name of this card, I saw the art, and I immediately clicked away from the thread. Luckily, I didn't see the number because I could have made all sorts of predictions. This is Time Worn Brand, a five cost asset for five XP neutral with willpower and combat icons. So this is our man, uh, red gloved man or key of this for this cycle. It's item, relic, weapon and melee traded. I think everyone can take it because no one can't take level five neutral cards. And it takes up a hand slot. Action. If Time Worn Brand is ready fight you get plus two combat and deal plus one damage for this attack or action exhaust time worn brand fight add your willpower to your skill value for this attack this attack deals plus three damage if this attack defeats an elite enemy draw three cards max once per game wow the word i want to say i will not say okay so the first action, it's a switchblade without conditional damage, which is nice. Would I pay 5 XP to upgrade a machete and get rid of the drawback of machete? Probably not, apart from in a dedicated guardian deck. But, I mean, I play plenty of those, so I would. The exhaust ability is amazing, though. So as Zoe, you're fighting at 8. As Leo, you're fighting at 8. As Mark, you're fighting at 8. And you're doing 4 damage in a hit. And if that 4 damage is the final... So you could have gone chop, chop and done two, four damage, and then you do a final hit for another four. So that's eight damage in three actions. And if that kills an elite enemy, you get three cards out of it. Essentially all of the actions back. I mean, that is powerful. I like that. You can also pick and choose. You don't you don't have to do that exhaust ability. So you can just be using this to chop, chop, chop. And then you're like, ooh, elite enemy. It's a four health one. Bam, you just got branded, son. Okay, wow. The art as well is amazing. The art in this pack has been very strong. We started with a Magali card and we end with an Andreas Zafiratos card. Oh, I'm exhausted. That was really fun. What a pack. Handcuffs, let's wait and see. Blood Eclipse, baller. Feed the mind, weird as F. Colt vest pocket, can't wait to pop pops and fools. Coup de grass, waiting for a place. Skeleton key, weird. Mists, wicked. Winging it, situational. Rifle, beautiful. Thermos, costly. I'm now just saying whatever word comes to mind. And then two other cards that you heard me talk about. I'm getting a bit overexcited. Okay, a lot of interesting... No! Damn it! The plan was to not say the word interesting the whole episode. And I think I've done it up until this point. And then I said interesting. Failed. I'm going to have to castigate myself with a time-worn brand. Okay, I hope you've enjoyed this. If you've ever taken the time to like one of our Facebook posts, retweet us on Twitter, uh, send us a message on our Gmail, or even just, you know, a Facebook message or something like that saying good episode. Thank you so much. Yesterday was World Mental Health Awareness Day, and it might be very trivial for you to do something like that. But it's kind of scary sometimes to put these episodes out, to put myself out there, for Peter to put himself out there. And it means so incredibly much to us that you would take the time to share your enthusiasm for this game with us after we've shared our enthusiasm for this game. I'm so glad and happy to be part of the community of this amazing game. And I just want to continue adding positive, life-affirming things to the game and hope that other people want to do that too. You know, the community is only as good as 
what everyone puts into it. And we're so lucky that we have a game that's so filled with amazing stories, amazing adventures, naughty decisions, deck building challenges, but most importantly, really cool, really lovely people. So yeah, I just wanted to say, I don't, you know, I have a soapbox, so why not stand on it and talk about it, how I feel? Yeah, I'm just really glad if you've ever bothered to say anything. If you want to get in touch, we're on drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. We are drawn to the flame on Twitter and Facebook, which is really easy to find us. And maybe you want to make my life a little bit easier and Peter's life as well by going to drawn to the flame on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash drawn to the flame, because I lead a portfolio existence where I do various different things. I'm actually training to be a counsellor and help people with their mental health. So yeah, I do all sorts of different things and every little bit of support really is so valuable to me. Thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 